Man is more himself, man is more manlike, when joy is the fundamental thing in him, and grief the superficial. Melancholy should be an innocent interlude, a tender and fugitive frame of mind. Praise should be the permanent pulsation of the soul. Pessimism is at best an emotional half-holiday. Joy is the uproarious labor by which all things live. Welcome to Pints with Chesterton, a podcast where two millennial women dive into the wonderful and whimsical works of Gilbert Keith Chesterton. I am Marie. And I'm Grace. Today we are talking about Orthodoxy Chapter 9, the very last chapter, Authority and the Adventurer. Cheers. Marie. I'm saying cheers cheers already. Yeah. (laughs) I'm so excited to be here. I know. And we're very excited because we're both drinking beer for once on this Pints (laughs) with Chesterton podcast. (laughs) It's taken over a year. But I'm finally drinking something. I'm finally drinking a pint with Chesterton. Yay. Today I'm having a peanut butter stout, a peanut, no, a peanut butter porter by Sagatuck Brewing and Company. And it is delicious. It sounds delicious. I'm really enjoying it. I'm not pregnant. I'm (laughs) able to have this drink. It's a beautiful thing. Um, So... Cheers. What are you drinking tonight, Grace? What do you think I'm drinking? Oh, Guinness? <laughs> yes. Guinness Stout? Yeah. Yes. I love it's, it. It's um, very predictable, but just a classic and I can't go wrong, you know? So. Well, we tasted this beer last week. Actually, David and my brother were having beers together and loved it. And my sister-in-law said, oh, it tastes like Guinness to me. So I think you would really, I think <laughs> I you probably really would like, like it this. then. <laughs> yeah. It's a dark creamy kind of tasting beer and oh i i just have good memories with dark beers too yeah <laughs> but like just good times with friends so in true. ireland in the u.s mm, love it okay so what have you been up to this past well like <laughs> the past, <laughs> past several a lot weeks, of weeks I guess. yeah no i so i had covid womp womp um but mm-hmm. gratefully it was not you know horrible it definitely hit me though and i i was I was definitely sick. I was, of course, at home, not at work for about a week. And it's still, you can probably still hear it in my voice. I'm a little, a little scratchy, but feeling much better, just tired still. And uh, we just had a major cold snap here in Baton Rouge, which is unusual for us. Um, but yeah, I was telling Marie earlier, it was 20 something degrees this morning in Baton Rouge, which is highly unusual <laughs> so that's definitely making me a little sniffly as well but, <laughs> but I'm feeling better and I'm happy that I'm feeling better so I'm so glad yeah so what have you been up to well kind of just settling into a uh, new year's routine um, I had my brother who is also brother and best friend um, and his wife and their son move into our home at the beginning of the year, and uh, this was planned, but uh, a little sooner than we all anticipated. We kind mm. of anticipated it happening maybe six months from now or even a year from now. So it's been kind of like a little chaotic, but I bet <laughs> the, things have finally settled down a little bit. And I think we all feel like 
we're getting into a good routine and honestly it's just been so much fun having dinner with them and yeah getting to be a part such a special part of their baby's life and them being around our baby all the time he enjoys seeing them almost as much as us you know so that's um it's really been fun so yeah it's been settling down and I'm grateful for that Lately, I have been trying to read a lot more and have been trying to also just be more moderate about my New Year's resolutions. So (laughs) I kind of didn't make any officially this year because I know the things that I need to work on. They're the same things I've needed to work on for years. (laughs) So um, I already had those things in mind and... I've just been kind of trying to do a little bit better at everything that I need to do. Um, And one of those things I wanted to do better at was reading more books this year. I did okay last year, but I, (laughs) I love to read and I sacrifice it for other things that are less meaningful a lot of the Mm -hmm. time. So I read a book called Gunner's Daughter this week. And I feel like I've heard of that. Yeah. Have you heard of Sigrid Unsit? Yeah. Yeah. She wrote... Kristen Lovren's daughter. Okay, so that's that's hers too. Yes. Okay. So she wrote Gunner's daughter about ten years before Kristen Lovren's daughter. So it's an earlier novel. Mm-hmm. Um, it's short and punchy, an excellent story. Hmm. You can kind of feel that, and I don't mean this. I, I thoroughly enjoyed it, but you can kind of feel that it's slightly underdeveloped. Like, perhaps if um, she had been a little more experienced or maybe had a a different, I don't know who she had to edit the book for her, Mm -hmm. anything like that. But it probably could have been developed a little bit more. But it reads like a a Norse myth, Hmm. almost. It has those vibes. It's it's action-packed. There's a conversion in it. Um, It's a story about, like, what real love is. Mm -hmm. Um, about what happens like when our vices overtake us when our desire for revenge overtakes us Mm. it was fascinating and I bet yeah so I really enjoyed that and I also I'm also almost done with Anna Karenina and yes I've been reading it for two months but (laughs) I mean I feel like that's an okay book to read for two months (laughs) it's a thousand pages I think or like 900 something so I'm almost at page 700 I think and I love it it's just it's a lot I don't get long chunks of time to read so Mm. anyway I've been enjoying those and then also finished up orthodoxy this week and was looking over it again um, over the last few days so what have you been up to as far as reading goes so I've actually been reading more than I normally can report Um, part of that is because of COVID and I was just like laying in my bed for a long time so gratefully unlike most um most flus or colds that I normally have despite being actually sick I had like more presence of mind um than I normally do so I was grateful for that so I was able to read some things that's awesome yeah the first thing I read was just a quick little murder mystery by Maria de Fiorello I think that's her name oh um, called the sleeping was it the sleeping murder or the sleeping witness? The sleeping was witness. That's what it was. Story about, um, she writes about this Benedictine monk named Father Gabriel and he's kind of the sleuth or whatever. So I was going to ask you about that because you sent me a picture of the book right before you started it. And mm-hmm. is it, does it have 
sort of the feeling of Father Brown? Like she's kind of um, taking some inspiration from Father Brown or is it totally maybe, different? Maybe I think it's inspiration just in the sense of you have this like very keen minded priest who is observant of the things around him. But I think their personalities are different. I think, yeah, just the whole feel of the story. It felt, it was a very quick read, whereas Chesterton is so dense. Um, when you read Father Brown, yeah. you kind of have to still read sentences over again to <laughs> understand yeah, what he's yeah. trying to say, you know, and hers read yeah. more easily, I guess. It wasn't okay. as, as okay. dense. Yeah, but it was fun. I mean, I read it. It's crazy. I literally never do this, but I read it all in one night. Wow. It was just like one afternoon. I like came home and I think it was right before I got COVID and I like came came home and just plowed through it. And, you know, it hooked me enough to where I wanted to know what the ending was, which is the fun thing about murder mysteries. But yeah, so I just sat there and read it. The other thing that I read recently, which was sort of a a surprise, I also was thinking a lot about New Year's resolutions Mm. and... I don't know, just thinking about things that I kind of, again, like you said, like things that I've always wanted to do, things that I kind of have in the back of my mind, things that I know that I get better Mm -hmm. at. One of those being like, I just need to get physically stronger because I have such horrible back problems. Mm -hmm. Um, And like working on core strength is really important, but it's also something that I'm completely unmotivated to do unless I'm in excruciating pain. (laughs) And um, I'm, I'm very motivated. I'm so extroverted. I'm motivated by other people. And for years I went to like a group gym and that my gym closed this year. And so I've been sort of floundering. And so I've been thinking about like, how do I get back into this? But I work really well if I have a very specific, concrete and far off goal. Um, Okay. (laughs) So (laughs) good to know yourself. (laughs) I know. So for a long time, for years and years and years and years, it's been sort of a pipe dream of mine to learn to surf. Oh. Um, And I say a pipe dream because I don't live anywhere where there are waves large enough to surf (laughs) and so I grew up on the water I grew up on Mobile Bay and I grew up near in Gulf Shores and Orange Beach and and the beaches Gulf beaches in Alabama but there's not not really waves yeah they're not and and every once in a while in the winter you'll see some people out with surfboards but it's like very rare and it's like yeah it's barely anything Yeah. yeah and so I just I've never lived in a place where there was surfing but, you know, I've I've spoken before and I, I as I was reading this chapter, actually, I I'm always constantly referencing music um, like lyrics, like as I'm reading things and a lot come from my favorite band, which is Switchfoot. And they're from San Diego and they're surfers, yeah. which they're, yeah. the name of their band is after surfing terminology, I guess. Yeah. And uh, anyway, so they have this big fundraiser every summer. Um, on Moonlight Beach and no way. it's for like local children's charities and everything and they do like concerts like bands all day and then they do the concert at night but like all during the day they have like surfing and surf competitions and surf jousting and like just fun things like for kids and families and whatever like all over the beach and it's always been my dream to go but I want to know how to surf when you go when I go yeah yeah um yeah. and so it's sort of like a pipe dream because again like how am I actually going to practice surfing I don't know that's going to have to like an opportunity will have to yeah present (laughs) itself but one thing I know is that I couldn't do it if I just went to California and tried it right now because I'm not strong enough okay and so my goal is to get to the place where I would be strong enough to even take lessons you know yes and so that was a long way of saying I was sort of dreaming about this I was dreaming about some other things like that I've always wanted to do and I had totally forgotten that 
I ordered a book that I've been wanting to read for years, just a tiny little kind of fun book called I Surf, Therefore I Am, um, A Philosophy of Surfing, <laughs> and it's by Peter Kreeft, of all people. Yes. Um, so he's, you know, a, a pretty famous Catholic Christian uh, convert apologist, yeah, yeah. and he he's a philosopher at Boston College, I think, and he writes a lot on theology and philosophy, but he is an avid surfer. And he's probably like, gosh, I don't know, close to 80 now. He's over 80, actually. Is he over 80? Yeah. And he surfs still. I mean, he like, he's so just like obsessed with it. And so this book was awesome. It was hilarious. I was laughing out loud. Like, I think I may have woken up my roommate because I was laughing so (laughs) loud, (laughs) laying in my bed during COVID, being totally inspired to learn how to surf um, eventually someday. So that's so awesome. Yeah. And he was doing such a great job of just like, I don't know, relating it to our, like the mystical nature of our faith of like being able to quote unquote, like surf the waves of divine providence. That sounds very cheesy, (laughs) but like, but just this idea of, and I've been contemplating this a lot in my life, just personally recently, this idea of letting go and letting the wave take you like the wave of God's providence, you know, and just trusting and like not understanding why or not understanding when something's going to happen or how something's going to happen, but then like being ready, but then just going with it, you know, whatever yes. befalls you. And so, um, that's, that's surfing. And so, yeah, just his way of explaining that was just such a great image for me. I don't know, relatable in some way. So that is so awesome. So yeah, so that's what I've been reading. And I also yesterday read um, my favorite, I think I may have mentioned it before, my favorite blog um, by Dr. Tom Neal, who's a seminary professor here in New Orleans. Mm-hmm. Um, just an amazing man. And in his blog, he just quoted Father Walter Chiswick, mm-hmm. who wrote With God in Russia, and he leaded I've me. read it. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So I've been meaning to read it. It's on my shelf, but maybe I'll read that next. But it was a, it was a quote from him about just total surrender when he was in yes. these like horrible prisons in Russia. And it was interesting because he described it like almost with this like surfing imagery. Like he didn't say surfing, but like it sounded like that. And it was just very <laughs> cool to like have all that converge like within a couple yes. of weeks, you know. I'm, lo- I'm loving hearing you talking about this because I think that the Lord often works in this way in our lives, like connecting all of these different things Mm -hmm. and we're renewed and refreshed by these Mm -hmm. connections. Mm -hmm. And it sounds like such a small thing, but it's, it is as simple as something that you're reading. You then talk to someone about or hear from somebody about, or you see in another work, the same sort of theme coming up and you're like, okay, God's trying to tell me something with what I'm reading. Totally. That's so beautiful. And that's what, that's honestly what Chesterton kind of does for us too in yeah. his fiction and in his nonfiction works. He draws together these pretty much the same ideas across a lot of his works, but expounds on them in different ways. That's amazing. I bought that surfing book from um, Dr. Crave for David last Christmas. It was our first Christmas married and I got him surf lessons, um, a wetsuit and that book that's awesome an iou for a surfboard and then and then, <laughs> and then you left. moved to wisconsin <laughs> and then we moved from san diego to wisconsin so i'm um, sorry babe but uh. um he did go do um surf lessons with my brother and really enjoyed it and um uh, yeah anyway good times that's great okay so this is the last chapter of orthodoxy we're wrapping up this i know i can't believe we're finally here (laughs) 
And it's like, for how long we've taken to do it, you might think that it's a tome. But it's 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 not tiny. It's a little book. But there's a lot packed into this little book. It is dense. So we are going to dive into this today, talk about it a little bit, and then we're going to move on to another work soon, which we're really excited about. So he talks about quite a few things in this chapter. And the first time I ever read through it, I, I got a little lost. Mm. And I kind of thought this feels a little random for the last chapter of this book. It doesn't feel like it totally lands. But in mm. reading it multiple times over the <laughs> years and then recently again, I, I think it makes sense. And one thing I'll say is that he didn't intend for this book to be perfect. Right. And he didn't spend tons and tons of time making it perfect. He wanted to give, as we've said previously, a personal defense of Christianity, Orthodox Christianity, what he finds to be true and and how it, it's true for him. Um, mm-hmm. How he came to that, like the whole process yeah. by which he came to that. And I think he says in this chapter specifically, like, look, this isn't a work of apologetics. Like, I can meet you in that arena, that more obvious arena, some other Somewhere time. Somewhere else. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. He's like, but this is the story of me. This is the story of my understanding and kind of how I came to belief. And that's not, you know, based on strict intellectual arguments, although it is also based on intellectual arguments but there's so many things and I think that's you know earlier just now you're talking about connections and like how God speaks to us through these connections and I think that's one of the themes of this chapter Chesterton mentions having evidence but evidence being as he says scrappy evidence (laughs) there's like things you know for both belief and disbelief there's scrappy evidence we have all these little things that we hold together yes um and I don't know if we've talked about this before, but Newman, John Henry Newman calls it the illative sense. I don't think so. Well, I don't, not that I remember. You bring together all these little things um, that just like on their own or even just said in a row, like people on the outside may think like that doesn't seem like very good evidence, but you're like, no, but but everything like it makes no, but sense it really like, when it all connects and it all comes together in your mind. And yeah. Oh, yeah. He says, it's precisely such scrappy evidence that does convince the mind. I mean that a man may well be less convinced of a philosophy from four books than from one book, one battle, one landscape, and one old friend. The very fact that the things are of different kinds increases the importance of the fact that they all point to one conclusion. I just so relate to that because there's times when theology and philosophy Um, of our faith are extremely convincing to my mind. Yes. But there's other times when I feel like there's a breakdown and I don't understand and I can't see and it feels very dark in my mind. And we talked Mm -hmm. about this, I think, more at the beginning of the book Mm -hmm. where you can kind of get into that small little dark place in your mind. But the only way to get out of it is to do something that's not intellectual, like something that's more like in a different vein of life. Yeah. So for me, it's like whenever the intellectual arguments seem to break down or I'd, I can't grasp them or understand them, all of a sudden comes kind of waltzing into my mind the image of the saints, you know, mm. or a person in my life who lives their faith and I see that it's real because of their action and because of their words, not because of their arguments, you know. Yeah. Or I experience something in the liturgy or in the sacraments or in prayer that 
transcends song lyrics yeah or song lyrics that like transcends uh, a rational argument you know but it's sh- it's all points to the same thing and it all sort of mutually reinforces each other and i think he's sort of summing up in this chapter all the things that he's previously been talking about like look all these things are pointing in the same direction yes i i completely agree and i think you know this is a this is serious business and and light business at the same time and i feel like that's part of what Chesterton does so well is is balance the serious and the light. Mm-hmm. But if you're going to commit your whole life and life is not... I just dropped my phone. <laughs> if you're going to commit your whole life to loving someone, to loving God and giving over everything to him and committing your life to the guidelines that he's set out for us, you want to really be convinced that this is true. Yeah. I mean, if Christianity is not true, I I don't want to commit to loving someone who doesn't exist or who doesn't truly love me or yeah. didn't create me. Something that I really took from this chapter and from, from what you said um, about evidence kind of coming from all directions is that if you're really going to believe something and if you are going to find out if something is really true, you want every element of your life to sing, yes, this is true. Mm. And like we've said in previous episodes, this is one of the things that Chesterton found. The more he searched, the more critics he read, the more conversations he had, the more digging he did, he found that everything was speaking to him of Christ. Mm. And he, yeah, I I love the way that he talks about Christ in this chapter about how he has his own genre because of how (laughs) Christ, because of how Christ speaks in the gospels. And anyway, I, I love that he brings up that point. And I think it's really important that if you're going to commit your whole life to something, it better be worthwhile. And I think he's saying it really is worthwhile if you feel that everything around you in the world is overwhelming evidence for it. Mm. And maybe it doesn't look like overwhelming mm-hmm. evidence to another person, but that doesn't really matter mm-hmm. um, in the end. I feel like, I don't know if this is Chesterton or Lewis or somebody, I remember hearing say that like, it's almost like the more evidence you have, the harder it is to explain to somebody. <laughs> Yeah, Chesterton like, says that. Is it Chesterton? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. yeah, it's like... A few chapters ago. Okay, so it's yeah. it's so true, though. It's 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 a whole lifetime or a whole like lifetime so far, I guess, of evidences that are sort of building up in your mind and you know them all and it's just hard to communicate your whole experience, which I, I really think I, I admire him for taking his own advice that something worth doing is worth doing badly. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, not yeah. saying that this book is bad, but, you know, it is like kind of thrown together and that's what he says it kind of is like yeah uh very quick this is the story of my conversion you know or my intellectual conversion and it's not necessarily like a a magnum opus yeah and work you know he's just throwing it it together even though it really is is and it's beautiful and it's amazing it's just um but he's i think i think that's just i don't know a lesson for me that yeah, I really do believe that if something's worth doing, it's worth doing badly. <laughs> like yeah. that it's it's like you just go for it, you know, like you don't totally. it doesn't have to be perfect. And and my natural MO is perfectionism. 
Um, and I know that I haven't done a lot of things or said things or started things that I needed to because I wanted it to be mm. perfect or the conditions to be perfect. But the things that I've just gone for, you know, even if it wasn't perfect, like have mm-hmm. ended up bearing more fruit in the end. Totally. So I just I think it's cool that he just kind of like throws this together like you would throw together an argument for somebody asked who asked you the reason for your faith you know and you're like ah I'm just gonna go for it here and we're gonna start talking about something you know (laughs) you know he's brilliant but you can tell he's somewhat uncomfortable having written this book yeah I mean this is a vulnerable thing to tell somebody why you've fallen in love with absolutely God like that's very personal because somebody can easily say this is stupid and you suck (laughs) yeah yeah and it's like wow this is my heart you know (laughs) yeah this is my life this is my story and that's yeah it's it's a vulnerable and risky thing to do I'm so glad he did it yeah me too so something that he talks about to this is kind of um now we're heading slightly in a different direction but everything is connected so we will get there (laughs) he talks a lot about miracles in this Mm -hmm. chapter he does yeah he has a whole little He's got a whole section on it and, yeah. and some proofs, if you will. Of, yeah. um, but I wanted to ask you, why Why do you think he went into so much detail about miracles? And then um, my second question is, why, why, does, uh, why is his defense of them so important, do you think? Okay, so first question, I think the answer why I talk about miracles is because of the point he's trying to prove by talking about them. I think, well, there, I think there's two things. I think one thing he's trying to talk about is miracles are one thing on a list of things in this chapter that he puts forth as something that skeptics kind of point to to deny the mm. faith. Mm-hmm. And he's trying to reverse that and, and prove that like all these things that skeptics say like are actually like the evidence points to the contrary. And so I think miracles is one of those things. Um, there's so many people in the world who claim that they've experienced a miracle you know throughout the ages and I think Chesterton is trying to be like yo like all these people say something like how could you say that there's not evidence you know but um but I think the other point that he's trying to make is that um skeptics or non-believers will point at Christianity and say you guys only believe in supernatural things because your dogma tells you to yeah and also you Christians are not you know democratic or you know egalitarian or whatever like you're I don't know like you're you you have like this pope that you have to obey or you have this like whatever mm-hmm. you know and, and so they're trying to say like, like you're, you're not democratic servant you don't care about the of, little man yeah and you you're are just blindly like, believing this yeah, yeah yeah and um and he's trying to prove in talking about miracles that actually Christians are democratic because they'll believe anybody's word like that's like a common man that you would otherwise believe like because you you have this natural trust of the common man like as a Christian. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but also like that you're not believing miracles because of the dogma. You're be- believing miracles because somebody is giving you evidence that it happened. Yes. Um, whereas the person who's doubting the miracle is doubting based on dogma that miracles can't happen. Yes. And a person that's doubting the miracle is also uh, maybe denying that you should listen to the common man because he's oh just the common man and was he know you know (laughs) and so they're doing exactly what they're accusing christians of doing where christians are not doing what they're accusing them of doing in discussion of miracles yes 
you explained that perfectly. And I loved what he said about, um, he says, a false ghost does not prove that there are no ghosts, just as a forged banknote does not prove that there's no Bank of England. Right. Just because there are sometimes quacks who claim things that aren't true doesn't mean that nothing supernatural is true. Right. Um, just the other day, David experienced this, I think, talking to someone in the interwebs who said, I, I would maybe believe in God if if he parted the sea today, <laughs> you know, like if, they, yeah. you know, whatever. It's like, wait, it, he did that. <laughs> yeah, I yeah. know. I know. I, that was exactly my reaction. I'm like, wait, he already did, though. But also, it's like so funny to me because, okay, maybe the Lord will decide to part the sea, whatever. Maybe that will happen. But there are miraculous things happening around us all the time that look a little different than that. And they disbelieve all of that. So Mm. why all of a sudden would, like, Mm. I, I feel like if you're determined not to believe in miracles and at any cost, you will not be open to believing that a miracle is a miracle. You're Absolutely. not going to believe that the parting of the sea is miraculous. You're going to yeah. try to come up with some scientific explanation for why it's happened, you know? Yeah, I mean, at the miracle of the sun at Fatima, right? Yes. I mean, people, thousands of people, tens of thousands of people were standing in a field watching that happen. And there were tons of people who, like, were converted and had faith. And then there were tons of people who were like, everyone's crazy. This didn't really happen, you know? Yeah. <laughs> and it's like... yeah. What else do you want? You know, it's like there are, there's miracles all the time. And so, yeah, if you're not going to believe it, you're not going to believe it. And I think Jesus is very clear about that in the gospels when he's like, the son of man came eating and drinking and you called him a glutton and a drunkard, you know, mm. and John the Baptist came fasting and you called him a crazy man. You know, yeah. it's like, you can't win. <laughs> it's like, you yeah, damned if win. you do, damned if you don't. Like if you're, yeah. if you've already made up your mind, which is what he's accusing the skeptics of doing, he's like, look, you've already made up your mind. You have a dogma that these things cannot happen. And so you're the closed-minded one, not me. Yeah, because he's not saying, oh, you have to believe what I believe. Mm -hmm. Even though I think since he knows it's true, he'd like it if everyone believed it because he knows it to be the truth. But he's not trying to force anybody to believe it. He's just saying, you're not really open to the evidence, to the facts. Like you're acting like there can be no evidence for this kind of thing. Right. And I think that's something that like, again, proves the the premise of this book is not I'm going to give you an apologetic of why miracles are real. The premise of this book is like, I'm trying to show you how contradictory skeptics and skeptical arguments are in my experience. And the contradictory nature of these things pointed to me that maybe I should take another look at this thing that I thought I knew what it was but actually maybe I don't know what it is. And maybe all of the skeptics and the people that are kind of shouting it down, like are missing a lot in their arguments, you know, or they're basing them off of false assumptions, you know? Yeah. Okay. So another, another thing that I wanted to talk about was, um, what are the results of the idea of reincarnation? Like what are, what are, what are the problems Uh, that we find with that? I thought that was fascinating. He says that, the belief that people are reincarnated leads to, you know, you see a, like basically the idea of reincarnation is like you're reincarnated as something and whatever it is, is based on your the merits of your past life, whether that's good or bad. And so if you see a beggar on the side of the road who is suffering, mm-hmm. 
then you must think like, oh, you must have been a horrible person in your last and yeah, in your last life. And so I can treat you as such. It's it's this whole idea of caste system, like in India, you know, if you're in a bad state, well, like, you know, sucks for you, you did it to yourself kind of thing. And he says, in contrast, is the idea of, you know, not reincarnation that like we are who we are and this is our one earthly life, you know, that lasts forever into heaven or into eternity. And we're all corrupted by original sin. So if you see a person suffering, you can't say like, I'm better than you because I'm not suffering at this particular moment. Yes. But um, like we all have this problem. And so it makes us, he talks about, what does he say? Something about like, it makes us able to pity and also just like laugh you know, together. And it's like this camaraderie and this sense of like, we literally are all in the same boat and we're all seasick. He says yeah. elsewhere, you know, like we're, we're in this together kind yeah. of thing. Which was another point that he talked about, which was that in paganism, like joy was this small part of it, right? This like fleeting oh, yes. pleasure. And as we approach death in, in like pagan belief, that joy diminished because the thought of life ending was so awful but for the christian joy is the main it's better yeah <laughs> yeah as we as we read at the beginning the quote i read at the beginning of this episode um that joy is the fundamental thing mm. grief is the superficial and so mm. as we approach our death we can actually rejoice all the more because we are anticipate a life with the lord for eternity mm. and an end an end to original sin an end to really the uncertainty of life. I also loved, um, and I'm, I'm going to try to find the line, but um, he talks about how, I think it's right at the end of the chapter. Yeah, I'm going to, I'd like to read a line from the end of the chapter on my, my copy, it's 229. Um, but he says, Christianity satisfies suddenly and perfectly man's ancestral instinct for being the right way up, satisfies it it's supremely in this, that by its creed, joy becomes something gigantic and sadness becomes something special and small. The vault above us is not deaf because the universe is an idiot. The silence is not the heartless silence of an endless and aimless world. Rather, the silence around us is a small and pitiful stillness, like the prompt stillness in a sick room. We are perhaps permitted tragedy as a sort of merciful comedy because the frantic energy of divine things would knock us down like a drunken farce. We can take our own tears more lightly than we could take the tremendous levities of the angels. So we sit, perhaps in a starry chamber of silence, while the laughter of the heavens is too loud for us to hear. Mm, I love okay. that. <laughs> this, I am just like blown away by that. And it's so true. <laughs> it also is so comforting to hear that yeah. because I think sometimes it's easy to, when we're here on earth and, you know, this life is really all we concretely know at mm -hmm. this time. It's it's hard to imagine heaven, for me at least. Yeah. And it's hard to imagine anything. Like, what does unending adoration of God look like? Yeah. Because sometimes adoration here on earth, like when I go to adoration, <laughs> isn't the most thrilling thing. Yeah. A lot of the time it's very rewarding and sometimes it's emotional but a lot of the time it's you know so anyway this line these lines were so comforting to me because 
he's he's saying something that Lewis kind of talks about in a few of his works as well, which is that it's so hard to for us to understand pure goodness and pure mirth, like he's talking mm. about, pure joy. Yeah. It's really hard because we are tainted by original sin. It's much easier for us to imagine evil and to write about evil and to experience evil and to do evil. And it's it's harder to imagine this this beautiful place where the laughter in heaven is too loud for us to hear. Yeah. We have to be prepared. Yeah, I mean, it's like you said, like Lewis and the Great Divorce, like you have to be made more whole in order to even experience heaven, you know, um, yes. and, and its fullness. And like, gosh, I, I feel like I've been sitting with this idea really for a couple years now, this idea that like the ground of all things is not darkness, but light. Like, mm. you know, in the beginning, you know, we, t- we talk about Genesis and whenever we imagine it, you know, because and I think it's because of the language of like, let there be light and there was light. But like, if you think about light, not in the like physical material sense of light, but like, um, like divine and uncreated light, like that is God that like in the beginning was not darkness. It was light. Yes. You know, it's like, so like you said, comforting and like relatable. And it's like, we know we have this like innate knowledge that something is not right here on earth but that we came from something that was right and mm. we're hopefully going towards something that is right, you know? And if it wasn't, then yeah, this is very uh, like Lewis. Like if we, if it wasn't, then why would we have this desire? Mm. You know, mm. like why would we have this desire for goodness? Why would we have yeah. this desire for light? If it wasn't something that was innate to like who we actually are, you know, that's so. Um, yeah. why would we struggle against the darkness naturally mm. Um, and, and, and feel like everything is wrong, you know, yeah. if it wasn't. Yeah. I, I loved when he quoted the, he says, Sir Oliver Lodge. I don't know who that is. <coughs> Excuse me. His interesting new catechism. He says, he's a, he's a British physicist who pioneered radio tel- telegraphy. Oh, interesting. He prophesized in 1894 that the sun emitted radio waves a theory that was proven in 1942 huh interesting that's what my copy says (laughs) so he says the first two questions of his catechism were what are you and what then is the meaning of the fall of man and he says i remember amusing myself by writing my own answers to the questions but i soon found that they were very broken at agnostic answers to the question what are you i could only answer god knows And to the question, what is meant by the fall, I could answer with complete sincerity that whatever I am, I am not myself. Um, And I I think that that is exactly right. He says, this is the prime paradox of our religion. Something that we have never in any full sense known is not only better than ourselves, but even more natural to us than ourselves. Um, We know that there's something missing. And we have not experienced, like you were saying, like we haven't experienced heaven, but we know about it somehow. And it's like, like we, we know that there's something more that we're, that we're created for, but we haven't quite experienced the fullness of it yet. And so there's like only these glimpses. And it reminded me, have you read the book Father Elijah by Michael O'Brien? Yeah, I have. It's been a while since I've read it, but there's a character in there, Father Billy, who's very lovable. And he's like funny and silly and whatever. Mm -hmm. But he says to Father Elijah one time, 
um, that there's a secret smile on the face of God. And I mm. wondered if he got that from Chesterton <laughs> mm. because he has this idea that like the mirth of God, like the joy of God that was like the ground of all things, like hasn't quite yet been revealed to us that like we've experienced it yes. you know, maybe in, you know, before the fall, but now we haven't yet experienced it and won't experience it in its fullness until heaven. What a beautiful thing to look forward to. Yeah. I'm sure, I'm sure Michael O'Brien has read a good bit of Chesterton. Oh, I'm sure too. Yeah. I'm sure he's read way more than us. <laughs> Probably. I picked up a book about joy. It might, it might be called Living Joy. Mm. I'm sorry, Chris Stefanik, if I'm remembering your name <laughs> wrong, but um, it was a gift from our, our pastor. And I'm, I'm flipping through this book and it's like, gratitude is the key to life basically and it's he's he's like listing all of these things that sound very chestertonian to me really <laughs> and um i i start reading the book and it's totally like he's taking chesterton's wisdom and applying it to today which is beautiful so good job chris that's awesome but yeah that last line that he talks about in the chapter when he, uh, he says there was some one thing that was too great for God to show us when he walked upon our earth. And I have sometimes fancied that it was his mirth. Mm. And first of all, I love that that rhymes. And second, <laughs> second of all, I get these little glimpses now of maybe what it's going to be like. And, mm. and I know that I don't really know, but like I look at my baby <laughs> and I'll be putting him to bed or putting him down for a nap and he's got this like perfect little face and it's fat and it's creamy and it's <laughs> so cute and he's supposed to be sleepy and going to bed and he just starts like he looks at me and he's like mama and he just starts <laughs> laughing his head off okay <laughs> he that's so cute <laughs> he loses it laughing and then i can't help it it's like that infectious laughter that you get in church when you're not supposed to be laughing. And we <laughs> yeah. like keep, oh my gosh, I keep dropping stuff. <laughs> we keep laughing, looking at each other. And it's like, it's just pure joy because he's like delighting that I'm his mom and that I'm holding him and looking at him. And I'm just like delighting that he exists. And yeah. And I think that might be a little I think bit you're more right. what heaven is like. Yeah. I mean, and if we believe, which we do as Christians, that, you know, family is an image of the Trinity, you know, it makes sense. Totally. Yeah. I want to read, actually, if you don't mind, um, you mentioned the whole thing about paganism, and I think this sort of plays into what exactly we're talking about. I want to read this yes. quote. Um and then talk about um, some things that I, just like some practical things that I've experienced in today's culture. Maybe sort of reiterating some things that we talked about in previous episodes, but he says the outer ring of Christianity is a rigid guard of ethical abnegations and professional priests. But inside that inhuman guard, you will find the old human life dancing like children and drinking wine like men. For Christianity is the only frame for pagan freedom. But in the modern philosophy, the case is opposite. It is its outer ring that is obviously artistic and emancipated. Its despair is within. It's like super foreboding sounding, yeah. but it's so true. He says, and its despair is this, that it does not really believe that there is any meaning in the universe, 
Therefore, it cannot hope to find any romance. Its romances will have no plots. A man cannot expect any adventures in the land of anarchy, but a man can expect any number of adventures if he goes traveling in the land of authority. One can find no meanings in a jungle of skepticism, but the man will find more and more meanings who walks through a forest of doctrine and design. Here, everything has a story tied to its tale like the tools or pictures in my father's house, for it is my father's house. I end where I began, at the right end. I have entered the least gate of all good philosophy. I have come into my second childhood. I think that's really that whole idea of second childhood sums up Chesterton's whole like personal conversion and personal philosophy. I feel like he just his whole idea of childlike wonder and his like <laughs> really embodiment of childlike wonder post conversion and in pre conversion in some senses. Yeah, it just shows the the reality that it's a paradox. Like things that that seem to be free and happy are actually not. <laughs> and things that seem to be bound by rules and, you know, drab or whatever, like internally are more free and, and happier. There's like this deeper ground of joy. Happiness is not this kind of surface level thing, but it's something that's much deeper um, that doesn't always show on the surface level, but it's something that's a lot more lasting. Yeah. And I think his his reference to that whole idea of like it's despair is within I had written in the margins because I first read this chapter actually out of order. It was probably about a year ago now. It was like last February or so. I was filling in for a, another podcast to talk about this chapter. And I wrote in the margins about my students that I was teaching at the time last year about how there's just a lot of nihilism um, in our culture today. And there's a lot of nihilism. There was a lot of nihilism among my students who were very bought into the whole just like ideas that the culture is speaking today, you know, that you create your own reality, that there are no rules, that moral rules really, or at least they're very different than what the church is saying, what Christianity is saying. And they see, they seem to have been fighting for freedom, for love, you know, for being accepted for who they are and all this kind of stuff. But in reality, they were all extremely depressed and they were, struggling against that despair like a lot like and I could see it like in their faces they were they didn't feel like there was really any meaning to life um it was very difficult for them to find that meaning and they were trying to create it in very odd ways you know and so I just saw it like kind of in living color this this reality that like when you you think you're fighting for freedom and you actually end up a slave in that small little space and we talked about this in a chapter previously but it's very real you know in our culture today I think that people who are not Christian look at Christianity or at Judaism, honestly, at any faith that has quote-unquote rules, but truly in Christianity, Christ sets, I don't even like to call them rules because Mm -hmm. I feel like the point is that we were created for a particular place in the order of things, right? Yeah. And things were created to have a particular place in the order of things. And it's a hierarchy. And God is at the top of that hierarchy. But if we if we place anything out of order, things get really wonky and fast. Yeah. And I think this is the these are the the walls that Chesterton is talking about. He says Catholic doctrine and discipline may be walls but they are walls of a playground Mm. because 
if you allow yourself to be in the place that God has set for you at his table, you will be fulfilled. You will be happy. You will be able to endure the suffering that Christ allows you to experience. And there's endless possibilities within those walls. Like yeah. you, you're not limited within them. Yes. You know, so you think, you know, I don't want the walls cause I don't want to be limited, but the paradox is that the walls actually set you free. Um, you know, he has the famous analogy of the playground on top of the cliff, you know, yeah. you yeah. have all these children playing and without the wall, without the fence, they, they return in terror. Yeah. Yeah. And they're scared. It says something about like their song ceases, you know, and they're, they're huddled together in the middle and they don't, they can't, they're not free to fly. They're not free to just like go wherever without any care. But when there's the wall there, when there's the barrier and you acknowledge it, then yeah, pretty much anything goes within that, you know, and there's, there's so much more variety and there's so much more beauty and there's so much more freedom. Yeah. Well, and when you think about, at least for me, like when I'm in my parents' home, I feel so like relaxed and safe Mm -hmm. and I'm not in charge here. So (laughs) somebody else can look after me. Like my mom is the person I call if I get hurt or sick or need help. And God is that for us too. Like he is our parent. He's our father, you know, and it's so important to understand that fatherhood um, and like relax and lean into being his daughter or son. Mm. That is your identity. This is what he has set out for you as as a Christian person. He's calling you to be his beloved son or daughter and you don't have to you don't have to try to do it yourself. Try to figure it all out yourself. Therefore go through depression, anxiety, pain of trying to do it yourself. Confusion, yeah. And then to just return to the Lord and <laughs> give it all over to him. It's like give it give it all over to him now. Yeah, I think I think humility like the the humility that Chesterton is advocating for is that childlike humility of like here is a person aka my parent, my father, my mother who knows more than me and I know they know more than me and I know I can trust them to tell me about the world you know he gives the, yes. the that beautiful analogy of being that in the garden with his father so wonderful and just like seeing his father or his mother says like the bees sting you know <laughs> and like he the flowers them smell. you know and the flowers yeah, smell yeah. and and then the, all these mysterious things he doesn't yet understand like why do my parents keep a cat you know <laughs> and like the cat <laughs> seems it. completely useless and lazy like why do i need you know why do they need the cat <laughs> and he hasn't yet discovered the beauty of having a cat you know yeah yeah and so I, yeah, I just, I loved the, the quote just after that. He applies that whole experience of being a child in the garden with his father and his mother. Um, and he says something about like, the whole world was to me a fairyland of wonderful fulfillments. And it was like living mm. in some Hebraic age when prophecy after prophecy came true. <laughs> it's like his parents kept telling him things and then he kept like noticing them actually happening in the garden, you know. But then later he applies it to Christianity. And he says that he started to see it as a mother and not merely as a chance example. I have found Europe and the world once more like the little garden where I stared at the symbolic shapes of cat and rake. (laughs) I look at everything with the old elvish ignorance and expectancy. This or that rite or doctrine may look as ugly and extraordinary as a rake, Mm. but I have found by experience that such things end somehow in grass and flowers. A clergyman may be apparently as useless as a cat, but he is also fascinating there must be some strange reason for his existence. Um, so he's just talking about how like if you have this humility 
I don't know everything and not everything is as it seems at first glance, just like a child in a garden. There's so much joy in that. And like you said, like that you don't discovery. have to know everything all at once. You you can have confidence and trust in the fact that even if you don't know everything all right now, like maybe yes. eventually, like at any moment, it could be revealed to you. <laughs> That's like exciting, you know, at any moment, something can start to make sense or click or fall into place. And I think those of us who have had faith for a while have had that experience over and over and over and over again, you know? Yeah. Yeah, and thank goodness we have the scriptures to yeah. be that part of that revelation to us. As, as we meditate on God's word, we can constantly be made new by what we're reading and have new things revealed to us. So we are coming to the end of Orthodoxy, Grace. Was there anything else that you really took from this book or that you wanted to make sure people left with as we move on to discuss other things? Honestly, I think we've already covered it. I think the main takeaway for me in reading really all of Chesterton, but especially this book, because it is such a glimpse into his own story and his own heart, is that idea of the mirth of God. And I think this is something that is missing in a lot of our discussion, especially today. Everything feels very heavy. You know, in our world, there's a lot of like darkness and there's a lot of things going on that have been a struggle for people. And I think sometimes it's easy for us to lose sight of the fact that like this is not the ground of all things, you know, like that that darkness is not the, you know, it's the small part of our existence. It's not the big part, which is Mm. the joy and the light and the laughter and the mirth of God. Beautiful. Yeah. So go go be a part of that mirth. (laughs) Well, I want to just quickly say thank you to everyone who has emailed me and sent Instagram messages lately. We've gotten quite a few and I have been trying to respond to everybody, but we we really appreciate your comments and criticism and this is this is a fun growing process for Grace and I and I think we both grown closer to the Lord by doing this for sure. Oh, absolutely. I can't honestly read Chesterton without feeling renewed. <laughs> yes. So <laughs> it's like praying. It really is. You read him and it really is like <laughs> it leads to prayer and it yeah, flows yeah. in and out of prayer. And it's, yeah, it's wonderful. So we, I took a poll on Instagram today to see what our next book would be because we were considering the ball in the cross and also the man who is Thursday. And last I checked, it was the man who was Thursday by one vote. Ooh. So <laughs> by one vote. That was me. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it was my vote. <laughs> I'm gonna leave it for the full 24 hours, and at the end we'll take a look. But both are fantastic books, and uh, we'll let you know what we decide to do. Yeah, I'm excited about either one. I have never finished the Ball on the Cross. I started it, and it's very intriguing. And I I know that it's one of your favorites, and I would love to read it. But I have read The Man Who Was Thursday three times, and I love it. So I'm also just kind of like, either one is fine. Um, But I did vote for The Man Who Was Thursday. (laughs) (laughs) I love it. Okay. Well, great. Um, You can find us in all the usual places, pintswithchesterton.com, at pintswithchesterton um, on Instagram, and pintswithchesterton at gmail.com. 
We appreciate you all so much. It's been just over a year since our podcast came to life. So many things have happened since then. <laughs> so much has happened. We're so grateful. We've gotten through 25 episodes in wow. a year. And <laughs> we are really grateful that we were able to do that with you. Thank you so much for listening. And thanks, thanks for reaching out to us, everyone who's emailed. Yeah. Shout out to Brother Pascal. <laughs> yes. We hope to visit you someday. Yeah. Well, may you all enjoy lives of wit and whimsy. Cheers. Cheers. Cheers.